I'm Matt Asher, and you've found The Filter on YKYZ. My guest today is Katie Herzog. Katie is a former staff writer at The Stranger in Seattle and co-host of the podcast Blocked and Reported. Katie, welcome to The Filter. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. So this is not a news podcast, but it would be insane for me not to mention that we are recording this just two days after an open letter was published in Harper's Magazine that essentially, without using this term, called out cancel culture as a threat to liberal society. You and your co-host Jesse were signers of the letter, along with some lesser-known writers and intellectuals <laughs> like uh, J.K. Rowling and Noam Chomsky. Yeah, some mi- some minor figures like Gloria Steinem and, and Margaret Atwood. They all uh, also, for some reason, let those um, let those nobodies on the list. So a few others as well. At any rate, it would be uh, insane not to mention the letter, not just because of the signatories, but because it represents the first step in the direction of what might be the only solution to what appears to be a rise in the power of illiberal mobs. And I want to get your take on that in a moment. But first, I want to recognize that what's sometimes called the woke crowd or SJWs have been highly effective in bending the cultural conversation in their direction and in destroying the lives of some people who say the wrong thing, even if that wrong thing is within the mainstream of thought among the population at large. Uh, In my view, they've achieved this by taking an approach that is essentially colonistic. Basically, you have a small group of cultural imperialists who are subduing the native population with a combination of firepower, intolerance, and moral certainty, and a view of those outside the city walls as morally corrupt and savage at best. So I want to start by asking if you think that's a fair characterization of the cancel culture moment and what your thoughts are about the open letter as a first step in pushing back. I think that's a very apt metaphor. I think it's one that is let's shall we say, prone to get you canceled. But I like that because it also, it specifically turns, it uses the language of these sort of mobs against them. You know, these are also many of the same people who complain about things like imperialism all the time. So um, so using their own terminology against them is, is sort of genius. Not that, you know, I guess we should be careful of saying like, well, yes, there is a difference between Invading someone's country and 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 Twitter moms, um, but yeah. In terms of the letter, it was interesting. I signed the letter because for a couple reasons. Um, first, there was the petty reason that I wanted to be in Harper's, and this was the the easiest way to do it without actually writing something Harper's worthy. And but the the bigger reasons were that I agree with the letter. We're in a moment now, as the letter stated, where we're we've been seeing this constricting of liberal values, sort of lowercase l values. Things like free speech and due process are on the wayside, at least on the left. At the same time, some on the right have sort of adopted these as their own values. And if I thought that was genuine and not um, opportunistic, I might be less concerned about it. But I am also concerned that the right has has similar similar trends on, on that side and, and has for a long time. But the letter... For me, at least, the letter was not meant to be 
it wasn't meant to reflect my own my worry about myself or my position. I'm I'm really lucky. I uh, my podcast is funded by listeners. Unless I say something that pisses off all of them, I can't be canceled. People have made attempts to cancel me uh, many times, sort of in in terms of complaining to my bosses when I worked at The Stranger, trying to get me fired. There's stickers all over Seattle calling me a Nazi and a transphobe and anti-left, none of which I actually am. There's one that calls me a Jordan Peterson apologist, which is sort of especially hilarious. Um, there's stickers of my face. During the protests against the killing of George Floyd in Seattle, someone uh, graffitied fuck Herzog on the door of the stranger. I would call all of those cancel culture. You know, I don't think that's like good faith criticism. I think that's I think that's an example of cancel culture. And even if I can't be hurt by those things, and there's some, I don't want to pretend that it isn't sort of emotionally trying to uh, walk down the street and see a sticker of your face calling you a Nazi. It is. But I still can't, in any material way, I can't be hurt because I'm independent. I'm incredibly lucky in that way. But it has a stifling effect. And so for me, a big part of the reason I felt compelled to sign a letter, and I'm not usually one who joins movements um, and jumps on bandwagons. I don't lend my signature to things easily. But I'm concerned about this. And it's not about me or J.K. Rowling or the other people on the list. It's about everybody else. It's about people who aren't invited to sign open letters. It's about the people I hear from daily. I get emails from people in academia and media, all of these sort of lots of white-collar industries and tech, business. And people feel like they can't say what they think. And I'm not talking about proclaiming hate speech or anything like that. I'm talking about sort of anodyne opinions. People are scared. And they have good reason to be. And I think the response to the letter shows that. So let's talk maybe a little bit about that then. And in particular, obviously, after this came out, it was inevitable that there would be pushback against it. Uh, There would be no point in doing the letter if it wasn't going to receive some level of hostility. If people were just going to look at it and go, oh, whatever, then, you know, then it wouldn't have had an impact. So that happens and it's come out. Do you see that as, you know, as opening up the door now, even in the face of the backlash for more dissenting opinions? And how do you see that playing out? I'm not convinced that the letter is going to change anything. Um, uh, You know, the letter, I think, was intended to be a signal to editors and to other people in the media and say, this is a problem. This is something we are concerned about. And if we're concerned about, this is something that you should also be concerned about. This is something that you might want to address in your publications. But it was also, I think, meant to be a signal to other people who just are living their lives, sort of normal people going about their business and saying, we see this thing that's happening and you feel like you can't say anything about it. But from our, you know, sort of lofty perches, of uncancelability in some cases, this is something that we're concerned about too. So I don't have a lot of hope that the letter is going to actually change anything. I'm sure that within the pages of Harper's, there was probably a lot of dissent about the letter. If you notice, the nobody from Harper's sign the letter. And I and I don't know if what that's about. Do you think that that was just a journalistic decision to not or or that was no one at the magazine themselves was willing to, uh, you know, stick their neck out? They were obviously willing to do it enough to publish the letter. Yeah. So I, I do know a little bit about this, but everything I know is off the record, so I can't really comment on it. Okay, that's that's fine. Uh, it's not that important for the conversation anyway. Though I think that what you described touches at a theme that I mentioned before on the podcast, which is that 
as people go about their business, there are pressures for them to pretend to believe things that they don't believe. And this creates an atmosphere in which people tend to view the reality around them in a in a false light. They think that there's universal agreement about woke culture that doesn't exist, not because the majority of people believe it, but because no one is willing to say, you know, this is bullshit, we, we don't agree with this. So maybe at the least it provides people the, the ability to see that there are others out there who feel this way, and even if they do have to keep quiet for their job or whatever, they don't get a false impression about the extent to which everyone else believes this. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're correct about that. I mean, the problem with what we call cancel culture, with these sort of Twitter mobs in particular, one of the problems, one of the many problems, is that they are not representative of the general population. Twitter is not representative of the general population. If you spend all of your time on Twitter, you would have gotten the impression that Bernie Sanders was going to be the next president of the United States and Elizabeth Warren would be his vice president or Stacey Abrams or someone. Like, it's just, it's completely not representative. And that was made abundantly clear after the election of Donald Trump. For people like me, people in the media, I think that should have been a wake-up call. We cannot report via Twitter. We cannot spend our lives online and expect to understand how people live their lives. Unfortunately, there are lots of economic pressures that make reporting by Twitter sort of the, in some ways, the only way to do your job. If you have deadlines, if you have two or three deadlines a day, going out into the community isn't, just isn't feasible. And that's a, a major problem in the media right now. But yeah, it, Twitter is not representative of, of the general population. But we've also seen, you know, We've been watching this trend. I've been watching this trend for several years. And for a while, the criticism was like, you know, someone would get deplatformed on a college campus. Someone would, would be invited to speak and students would show up and freak out and decline to, to let the speaker speak. And a lot of the response from some sort of the, some of the critics of what we call cancel culture or of the concept of cancel culture, the people who say cancel culture isn't real, is that this is just college students being college students, right? It's just on campus. Well, clearly, the the issue wasn't with college students being college students. College students have always been sort of crazy, radical, prone to high emotions, I suppose. Or at least I was in college. The problem is that this doesn't stay on campus. And that's what people like me were, were screaming, you know, three or four years ago. And I think that that has proven to be true. It has not stayed on campus. This trend has accelerated. It has entered business, media, education. It's all over academia. And my concern is it entering government. And I think that we're, we are starting to see that as well. Yeah, I see that as well. I find that fairly disturbing, especially in terms of the extent to which the judicial system seems to be increasingly kind of appeasing the mob in certain cases. But maybe, and maybe we'll get back to that point, but I wanted to back up to what you were saying about Twitter and how necessary it was, even if it, you know, is unrepresentative of the broader population, but there's almost an obligation to be on there. And then because there's an obligation to be on there, there's an obligation to not get canceled or, you know, deplatformed from it, which probably leads to a certain amount of self-censorship. In my mind, sort of the next step after doing something like a letter would be some kind of, you know, alliances or mutual aid networks where people are 
pledging publicly to stand with other people who are canceled. Not that you're going to back them up no matter what, you know, if they murder someone or something like that, but that you will be their their best advocate and that, you know, maybe you will even uh, sign on the line that you are willing to leave Twitter if if you have a large enough collection of people with enough of a presence or, you know, if their account isn't reinstated in a week or something like that. But I'm just wondering what you think about the possibility or whether you see any signs already of people coming together after this in alliances to push back and say, you can come after me, but, you know, it's like NATO. You come after that person over there and you, you might be inviting a war with everybody, which essentially seems to be the de facto mode of the woke mobs already, which is that, you know, if you attack one of them, you will get swarms. You know, what what are your thoughts about that as a next kind of self-defense step? Yeah, I, I don't think that leaving Twitter is the solution because that's just going, all of the voices who are pushing back will leave and then the platform will just be entirely sort of the cancelers. Um, so I don't think that's totally the solution. But I do think if you sign the letter, and there were some people I was surprised to see sign the letter, I think you have an obligation to stand up for people. And I include people whose political views we disagree with. You know, there is a reason that the ACLU fought for the Nazis' rights to march in, in Skokie. Like, these are long-held liberal values that even the ACLU is shrinking away from right now. I'm deeply troubled by that. So you put yourself, even for those of us who sort of are uncancelable, and I, and I consider myself in many ways uh, in that group, because people have tried and it has not worked yet. Even for, for, the, for people like me, it can still be difficult to stand up for people who you disagree with. It can, but that's a very necessary um, necessary step to take. So I'm, I don't think, you know, one of the criticisms of the letter was that there was some hypocrisy that you saw people who have participated in cancel ca- campaigns or people who, um, who say things like cancel culture isn't real uh, signing on the letter. And I, I like the hypocrisy is noted, but I think if you sign the letter, well, welcome, welcome to the fight. Right. And, you know, and now we expect you to continue to act in that way going forward. So, you know, even if someone has not been perfectly on board with the uh, pushback against cancel culture before, even if they've joined in the uh, cancel swarms before, maybe this is an opportunity to have them on public record that they are opposing this, should they, you know, engage in those in the future. Yeah, there have been, so far, there have been two people have disavowed the letter so far. I don't know how many people will ultimately, uh, (laughs) ultimately ask to have their names removed. Um, A couple people have. So picking back up on this idea of illiberalism within the left-wing community online, especially. Before the interview here, I wrote down all the ways in which it seems like the left has abandoned liberalism, and it, it started to kind of depress me. So I wondered if you could go into your own thoughts on that and the ways in which those traditions seem to be abandoned and why you think that there hasn't been more pushback against the abandonment of things like due process and free speech and so forth. Yeah, I think the three major ways that I've seen the left shrink away from these sort of classical liberal values are free speech, due process, and diversity of thought. And uh, and I guess freedom of inquiry would also sort of be groups there. With due process, I think we saw this most visibly during during Me Too. And 
the reason for this, I think there's a couple reasons. For one, Donald Trump, not to blame everything on Donald Trump, but I think after the election of Donald Trump, a lot of people on the left specifically thought this, we'd reached the crisis point, right? We had this, what they thought was a fascist, totalitarian dictator was coming to get us. And I don't think Donald Trump has, has proven to be that, mostly because he's incompetent. And because we also have lots of safeguards, thank God, um, that prevent him from maybe enacting his totalitarian fantasies, which he may or may not have. I'm not sure. I, I don't know that that he cares about anything sort of other than stroking his own ego. But I think that's part of it. It's a reaction to his election. And some of the fear, I think, is is warranted, uh, where he's been sort of, I think, most egregiously bad is his actions, besides the handling of coronavirus, but his actions on the border. You know, not that Obama was was great on immigration from a progressive perspective, but, but you know, losing children, losing immigrant children, putting them in a system and, and forcing them away from their families is deeply immoral. And I do, I, as the letter said, the letter said, you know, totalitarianism, Donald Trump, the Donald Trumps and Bolsonaro's of the world are a greater threat to democracy than, than Twitter mobs. And I believe that, although I think that there is something uniquely creepy about these sort of bottom-up totalitarian impulses that we're seeing right now, because most of what's happening right now isn't coming from the top, although there is certainly... Some of it in federal government, but it's coming from the people. It's coming from our peers, and that's disturbing. So I think that's part of it is, is just straight-up backlash. For a while, like when I was younger, when I was in high school and younger, I, I started. I was in a freshman in college on, on 9-11, so I'm in my late 30s. And I, uh, and for most of my, of my youth, cultural power was more split. Hollywood was maybe still, you know, left-wing, mainstream media, left wing, but the right had much more cultural power than they did now. And the left had much less. And that's shifted. And so the right has very, they might have power in the, in the sense that they uh, control the federal government and increasingly will control judgeships for decades to come. But I think they have much less cultural power. Or, or educational or journalistic media that yeah, is to yeah, say. That's yeah, yeah, that's what that's what sort of that's what I mean these institutions um colleges, academia, media, uh entertainment are mostly left-wing or or sort of liberal or uh, the, the words themselves are are in some ways so meaningless, but the left has cultural power. And I think a lot of people on the left still think of themselves as underdogs. Well, we're not underdogs anymore. We're the people with power. And when you have cultural power, the need to protect dissenting voices, I think people shrink away from that because you feel like you're right. So right now, when you're protecting dissenting voices, you're protecting people on the right oftentimes, people you don't agree with, people I don't agree with, because I'm still progressive. And I think that's sort of a natural progression of things. And I think these things come in waves. I also think we're in the midst of a moral panic right now. And this is not a new phenomenon. Um, this is sort of cyclical. People are followers. We look to our left, we look to our right, we say what our friends say, we do what our friends do. And that's natural. That's, I think it's a very human impulse to, um, to do what the people around you are doing. And there's this, like my most generous reading of what's happening right now is that people are terrified of being on quote unquote the wrong side of history. So, you know, we study 
all of us study the Holocaust in school, and I think we all like to believe that we would be the people, we would be the freedom fighters, we would be the people standing up for the Jews. Well, most of us wouldn't be, because it's incredibly difficult to stand up for your, uh, stand up to your friends, and that's just the reality of of how human behavior works. And so I think we're we're seeing a little bit of that too, is people genuinely want to feel like they they are on the right side of history. They 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 feel like they're fighting for social justice. What they're not seeing is all of the collateral damage, all of the downstream repercussions of this fight for what they would call social justice, which oftentimes means giving up these values like freedom of speech and due process that enable the discussion in the first place, that enable the protest movements. And I find that, I find that really troubling. I think that's a very interesting answer, this idea that, in a sense, what holds one in check or keeps one focused on more abstract things like process and freedom of speech is the knowledge that you're, you have to share power. But when your power is consolidated, then maybe it's not so important anymore to be focused on the abstractions like due process because the gun is never pointed at you. In, in the sense, talking about the cultural moment that we're in, if you feel like you are on the, you know, as you say, the right side of the law and you happen to be in complete control of the producers of culture uh, and, and thought, in a sense, then, you know, why would you worry about these piddly things? And then you combine what you said about being in a moment that feels like an emergency, then, you know, that seems like a, a recipe for those things. I also think that this is definitely a time when kind of the mob as a force is on the rise generally. And we see this both from the left and the right, the way that the right has been able to push back to the extent that it has is through essentially mob actions of their own. What got, I think I've mentioned this one before on the podcast, what got Shelley Luther, who was a hairdresser in Texas who wasn't willing to sh uh, shut her salon uh, because it was her own willy way of feeding herself and, and her fellow workers, what got her freed was essentially mob outrage from the right, which forced the governor to change the law, uh, a law that I thought was unjust. But nonetheless, the process was driven not by a respect for process per se, or not by the governor independently coming to the realization that this was a tyrannical thing to do in the first place. It was driven by mob outrage. Um, right, right. And I think that kind of the end game that perhaps other people aren't seeing, perhaps those on, on the left less than those on the right, is that the amping up of the tools, the illiberal tools, are certainly going to provoke a reaction on the other side and maybe even multiple other sides. I think there's a, a chance actually of, of secession at some point here. Are you connected enough to other communities besides the, the blue bubble, so to speak, that you see the ways in which people that are not inside of that are beginning to react to the kind of onslaught of illiberalism? I'm not. That's uh, that's one of my failings, I think, is that I, I think I've tried to pierce my own echo chamber and get out of my own bubble a bit. And like my, my best friend is an 86-year-old Trump supporter. We don't talk about politics. He doesn't seem to understand that the, that the lesbians who live across the street from him are probably not Trump supporters. Or maybe he just is less judgmental than I am and relies less on stereotypes. But I, 
You know, I'm very interested in this sort of phenomenon on the right because I'm sure that it exists. I mean, excommunication is, uh, you know, is a part of some church doctrine. It's not like that. It's not like public shaming is just a, a leftist thing. Public shaming is, is has existed as long as people probably have, but social media is the thing that has really, really changed the game here. But one other thing that you said that interested me. Take, for example, this uh, right now there's been this rash of people tearing down statues across the U.S. I'm of the opinion that statues of Confederate generals in particular, those are fair game. Those should be taken down. They were counter-revolutionaries. You know, they fought against the United States. I don't, I think they should be put in museums or at least explains. I mean, my preference would really be just like placards explaining who this people, who these people are, giving more historical context. But I, I understand the anger. So one thing that's happened is people will go and they'll tear down these statues. Like I'm from North Carolina. There's a, there's a, a statue of, um, his name's Silent Sam. And I'm, I'm not sure what the history is, but on the, the University of North Carolina campus. And students have tried to get it removed for years. And the Board of Governors, which is currently leans heavily to the right, has refused. And so they just took it down. And so in that case, you know, people did try to go through the process of, of, of getting Silent Sam removed. They, they, they tried to go through, through the steps, and it didn't work. And so then they resorted to, to mob justice. And I think that should be a telling experience for the Board of Governors or for, for people in power in general. If you don't allow due process to go forth, people will take up justice on their own terms. I think that that's correct, though I also see that bending to the mob or at least allowing the mob to declare that something needs to go away and they're just going to do it and there won't be any repercussions to them, it also sends a signal in terms of what's permissible activity in a democracy. Oh, absolutely. Yes, this is um, not something I will personally be taking part of. Although the, uh, so the the mascot of my elementary school, I went to a kindergarten through eight elementary school, and the mascot is, is the rebel. It looks like a little Colonel, Colonel Sanders fellow. And this was controversial when I was in, in second grade, you know, how many, 25 years ago, and they've still never changed it. And now there are like, there's like dueling Facebook group, like the remove the rebel, you know, remove the rebel group and then the save the rebel group. And it, so, and I'm in both Facebook groups. So I'm watching them. I'm sort of watching them battle it out. So, you know, something like that, like, I think it's totally appropriate to have concerns about a Confederate general as the mascot for an elementary school. It is an overwhelmingly white elementary school, but it's inappropriate, I think. And, ha and was inappropriate, you know, 25 years ago when I was in school as well. Yeah, and those things just kind of linger and have their own momentum, though it's interesting the extent to which we we create meaning around our symbols, right? For sure. Um, and we are able to interpret them however we want. I went to the University of Illinois, and while I was there, there was a, you know, there was a continual discussion about Chief Alinawick, kind of their mascot, especially mm. at the games, was an Indian chief, and at halftime he would come out and he would do a dance. And the story was, and I assume this is true, that the person who did it was always coached by elders of that tribe and trying to do an authentic dance. But nonetheless, there was always an uproar about it. And I, I didn't myself have 
an opinion one way or another, just to know that something would be lost either way, that if it goes away, then this representation, however flawed, of part of the American heritage disappears into the void or ends up as a plaque on some wall. On the other hand, you know, there's certainly the view that this was an offensive thing to some people. I guess it gets to the broader aspect of cancel culture that seems to be about interpreting these symbols in the in a way that that casts them in the light that's maximally offensive sure and sees everything that might be a slight as absolutely a slight and absolutely motivated by by bad faith right sure and i think that's also a tendency on social media and just maybe a, a byproduct of the time that we're in right now is just always assume the worst for sure. I want to get back to what you'd mentioned about public shaming and throw out a, a another theory to complement the cultural colonialist one, which is that what we're seeing right now to some extent is a reboot of honor culture with a particular focus on maintaining moral purity and limiting reputational contagion. I don't think the return of this culture has had nearly enough discussion. And in particular, almost no one seems to be willing to stand up for this very bourgeois idea that when a customer comes into your deli, you set aside your politics and you sell them a sandwich. And the act of selling them a sandwich doesn't make you a social pariah, even if the buyer happens to have the wrong views about, say, hormone therapy or trans women. As, as someone who's seen firsthand how just reporting on a taboo topic can turn you into an outcast, do you think that, do you agree that what we're seeing here is a return of some form of honor culture? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a really interesting way of putting it. There is this, right now, there's a strange trend for um, it's like guilt by association. It's very, uh, very McCarthyite right now. Guilt by association is huge, and also this utter intolerance of, of dissenting views, even views that represent the mainstream. In Seattle, I reported, uh, I think last year or the year before, on a story of, of a kid, a teenager who was walking around Seattle, and he was wearing a MAGA hat, which may be unwise, but perfectly legal. And someone knocked it off of his head and then spit on the hat. And he did the he did the sort of obvious thing. And, and he might have done this in part to provoke that reaction. He filmed it and posted it online and it got picked up by, by right-wing news. And it had the effect of making the left look intolerant, which I think is sort of fair, and also making this guy look like a victim, even if what he was being was a provocateur. Seattle, to its credit, and sort of ironically, has a law in the books that you can't discriminate against people based on ideology. So a business can't serve you, can't not serve you. If you walk into a cafe wearing a MAGA hat legally, the business is required to serve you. It's it's sort of ironic that Seattle in particular has that law because Seattle is also the sort of place where you're more likely to see someone, you know, spit on with a MAGA hat than served with a MAGA hat. I'm glad they have the law. I think there's also been some um, some pushback against it. And I'm not I'm not sure that it's ever ever at least in recent times been enforced. I think people want to appear to be on the right side of history or what they think is the right side of history. And for that, for them, that means being completely intolerant of any of any views outside of uh, their own sort of narrow window of what's acceptable. And even being close to someone with the wrong views seems to be problematic. There's both the aspect of moral purity that one is required to have when it comes to holding the right opinions 
And then also the reputational contagion aspect of honor culture, where you don't want to be associated with people who've been shamed. I imagine that there was spillover for you when you yourself were kind of publicly canceled in terms of people feeling like they couldn't associate with you or somehow that would kind of rub off on them. Yeah, and that hasn't really, really ended. So um, the, sort of the backstory for your listeners is 2017, I wrote an article for The Stranger called The Detransitioners. And it was this, uh, it was a, a piece about people who transitioned from one, one gender to another and then changed their mind and transitioned back. And it wasn't inflammatory. It wasn't an opinion piece. It was just a sort of deeply reported profile of several people who've gone through this experience. And I didn't have any sort of agenda other than to tell their stories. But there was this crazy outcry. People were burning stacks of the paper. There are stickers all over Seattle calling me transphobic. And my friends dropped me. I Just today, actually, this is three years later. And just today, I discovered that one of my best friends doesn't follow me on social media anymore. And he didn't say anything about why, but I know why. Um, he doesn't have to say anything. And it's, 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 it's hurtful. It's hard. It happened, like, I have discovered recently that four of my... It's one thing when, like, strangers come for you, but when your friends come for you, it's a totally different experience. And I don't think this is because my friends are bad people, or my former friends, maybe. I think they're good people, but I think they're also captured by a particular ideology, and they think that the fact that I question some aspects of that ideology is intolerable. And so their way of of, uh, dealing with it is to cut me out of their lives, um, either online or in many cases offline as well. Yeah, I think that that has to be, presuming that, you know, they aren't awful people, it has to be a function of the level of pressure to avoid the leper in a sense. Yeah. And to stay away from anyone who's who's outside the, you know, the walled garden of acceptable opinions. Yeah, I, I keep coming back to this term, the pressure to conform which I've never, in the last few weeks, I've never experienced such pressure to conform. And I get emails from people that say things like, you know, I, um, I'm i posting memes on social media that I don't believe in because I'm afraid that if I don't, I'll get called out. Oh, that's interesting. So a positive pressure, sort of like we saw with the, everybody has to post the, you know, the black square so that the angel of death doesn't visit your uh, your company yep. or, you know, you personally and, uh, and cancel you. There's positive pressures now to post memes. Yeah, it's it's very bizarre. I don't know. And, and people ask for my advice. And my advice is always like, do what you can to push back. Don't lose your job. Um, don't lose your livelihood. One of the things other than the open letter that you published that I think goes in the vein of pushing back and then ties in with the meme thing is that, and this is going to be a completely unoriginal comment, but there's this cliche that the left can't meme. Um, And I think there is some truth to that and to the broader view that the woke left in particular is is humorless. Humor by its very nature is triggering. Uh, and the result of triggering woke warriors is that they'll try to get you canceled, even if you yourself are, are one. So the, the lack of humor there makes sense at the same time, sort of especially in the world of podcasting. I've seen the rise of a number of podcasts from people on the left that are quite funny, like your own. And I'm wondering if the antidote to a, a world of Robin 
D'Angelo-style mandatory struggle sessions. And I mention her name only because I understand uh, that we're not allowed to do a podcast with you on it without <laughs> mentioning uh, her name. It's in my contract. Yes, of course. But I'm wondering if the sort of the solution uh, or one part of the solution to this is doubling down on humor and even perhaps deeply offensive humor as a way of reclaiming or opening back up space for for honest conversation. I think that humor is a, is a necessary element. Um, I will I will bow down in certain ways. I think everybody will, but I'm not going to stop finding things funny, and I'm not going to stop trying to be funny, even if I fail at times. You know, and and what we're allowed to laugh about has just constricted so much, and I reject that. You know, and I don't know what it is, but some network, some like streaming service, I'm not quite sure which one, took down a Golden Girls episode where Blanche or someone was wearing a mud mask because they thought it was going to offend people because it looked like blackface. Nobody asked for that, right? I don't think anybody asked for 30 Rock to take down their blackface episodes because the thing about about that one in particular, the butt of the joke is never black people. The butt of the joke is, you know, white people, which it's funny. Like, and there's this other thing where like, now, you know, we're judging people, we're judging humor, we're judging content, media, art, people by the standards of today for things that happened 10 or 15 or five years ago that weren't taboo at the time they were created or said or whatever. And I just find that so dangerous. You know, I mean, there's a reason that Jimmy Kimmel didn't get in trouble for for parroting Snoop Dogg in 1996, and that's because it wasn't taboo. And if something isn't taboo at the time that it is done, why are we retroactively condemning people for it? It's just such a strange trend. Certainly it is, though, you know, hand in hand with that is the shifting of the sands of taboo so quickly that even if you are just trying to keep up with what you're not supposed to do at this very moment, uh, that in and of itself can be tricky. Yeah, just wait five minutes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Thank you so much, Katie, for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. To hear more from Katie Herzog, make sure to check out the Blocked and Reported podcast. I highly recommend it and show them some love on Patreon. Thanks for listening to The Filter with Matt Asher. You can find show notes at thefilter.org or follow user Matt Asher on the socials.